Good morning. Good morning. One, two. Good morning. All right. Don't speak to me then. Good morning. Thank you. That's lovely. All right. Um, if you are new and this is your first time here, I want to extend to you, and I hope we already have by um, greeting you, but I want to extend a warm welcome to you on behalf of King's Cross Church. My name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here, and I am thankful that you've decided to dedicate this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. I am confident that your time with us is not a waste of time, um, but we are confident that God um, will use it to really inspire inspire you in so many good ways. Okay, we've been in the book of Hebrews, series in the book of Hebrews, that's where we're at, so grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews chapter 13. What that means for us is next week is our last week in the book of Hebrews. I always look for that, like, I always wonder how people are going to react, whether it's like a cheer, yes, we're done with Hebrews, or just, oh, but I like the, like, oh, it feels sad, we're going to be done with Hebrews, we want more, if you want more, you can always read it again in your own time, all right, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, this week we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to 6, and as always in our effort to honor God's word, may you please stand for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through to 6 reads, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love, from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we come confidently saying, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the experience we've had so far. God, we know that you are here. We know that you are going to speak to us. So God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us eyes to see. And I pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to obey all that you ask of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, verse 1 of chapter 13 reads, Let brotherly love continue. Notice something that it doesn't say, let love continue. But it actually says, let brotherly love continue. And so what's happening in this short little verse is that we are being instructed to express 
not just any kind of love, but we're being instructed to practice brotherly love. And so the question I'm sure you're asking is, what is brotherly love all about? The phrase brotherly love is two words in English, but one word in the Greek. The Greek word is a word we're all familiar with, and it's Philadelphia, all right? Philadelphia is a city in the state of Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia is used to communicate the close, intimate love between family members. Philadelphia is the love that occurs in a family. And so, King's Cross Church, for us to let brotherly love continue means to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. It means to love members of our church who's not, who are not blood relatives as if they were. It means to live in a loving community with people who aren't blood relatives, but who share fellowship based on a common bond. That's what brotherly love is all about. And for Christians, the common bond of union is Jesus Christ. For Christians, the reason why we can We are brothers and sisters. It's because we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, God is our Father. We've been adopted as children of God, and that makes us brothers and sisters. And so the question is, if we're family, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, then how should we live? What can Philadelphia look like in our church family? Number one, if you're making notes, we are showcasing brotherly love when we're radically hospitable. Radically hospitable. Look at verse two. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The biblical call to hospitality is one of the most overlooked and misunderstood commands in scripture. But the call to hospitality shouldn't be overlooked or confusing because it's a distinguishing characteristic of God's people. Imagine this, okay, work with me here. Use your imagination. Imagine this. Imagine you're a citizen of the first century. You've been traveling by foot on the dusty roads of the Middle East for several days. You're tired, you're exhausted, you're thirsty and hungry, and you decide to stop by a nearby city um, to get some rest and recover so you can continue your journey. While at this city... You don't have many options for lodging or accommodation. Your overnight options in this city are not ideal because all the places that provide accommodation 
food and drink for travelers like hotels and inns are too expensive. They're too expensive. And even if you could afford um, a hotel or an inn, um, you wouldn't want to stay there because back then in those days, these hotels had, uh, had really bad reputations because they were hangouts for prostitutes and thieves. And so you're stuck. You don't have many options for where to stay when you're traveling. And so, in other words, in those days, inns were not nice. They were not healthy places for Christians. And so where do you go to get rest? Where do you stay? You're expected to stay with someone you probably will not know. This is why hospitality was highly valued in those days. This is why many travelers, especially Christians, relied on the hospitality of others, relied on other Christians opening up their homes to welcome them and give them a place to stay. Hospitality is so important to the author of Hebrews, he motivates his readers to be hospitable by reminding them that in the past, okay, when people have been hospitable, some have entertained angels without knowing this. This is a reference to the several times in the Old Testament, especially when people like Abraham unknowingly hosted angelic beings. And so by mentioning this, all right, the author of Hebrews isn't telling us to be hospitable because you never know, you could be entertaining an angel, right? He's not saying that. The point he's trying to make is this, is that but by simply being hospitable, right, this is an indication of how much God values hospitality. He's placing a huge emphasis on hospitality, not just because it was a huge need back then, but because it should be a characteristic of Christians everywhere. And so the question is, in an age of where accommodation is affordable, all right, you can go Airbnb, there's a bunch of hotels everywhere, okay, that we can afford. You can use your points from your credit card, right? Get a place in a context, in a culture where accommodation is affordable and safe. How can we still be hospitable as Christians? How can we be hospitable when there's not much of a need for it, um, for us? Um, uh, there's not much of a need for us. And so, th how can we be hospitable? Here are a few examples, okay? First, um, we can be hospitable as a church on a Sunday. This is what I mean by that. During our Sunday services, every Sunday we have new people that visit us, okay? I would ask, if I asked right now and I said, if you're a first-time guest, put your hand up, we'll get someone, okay? I'm not going to do it. We're not that kind of church, okay? <laughs> we have a bunch of first-time guests. And as our church grows, what begins to happen is that we not only get, like, we're getting new people coming in all the time, and what happens is that most of us don't recognize other people that have been part of the church for a while. And so how can we be hospitable? By being intentional. 
in welcoming people, by being intentional in not just hanging out on a Sunday during the service with people that we're familiar with. Yes, I know you love your friends, okay? But they're always going to be there. They're not going to leave you. It's not all about just hanging out with your friends, but let's make an effort, effort, King's Cross Church, to be intentional in connecting and engaging with people that we don't know. Second, when you meet someone you don't know on a Sunday, I dare you to invite them for lunch. I dare you. This is the point. Like We need to go above and beyond and be radical in our hospitality. Invite them to lunch. You just met them. You're having a conversation with them. Hey, what are you doing for lunch? Come and join us and come and join the people I'm going with. Let's do that. The next way we can be hospitable is being intentional about inviting our neighbors to dinner. And so the question is, how many of your neighbors have you had round for dinner? If you've, if you've had your whole neighborhood for dinner, great. Okay? Extend it out. Do the other neighborhood. <laughs> but let's be intentional in inviting our neighbors over for dinner. Next thing is, um, be open and offer to host guests, okay? Um, I went to seminary in LA, and there's, um, I think several months ago, uh, on Facebook, one of the students I graduated with emailed me and said, Obed, or messaged me on Facebook and said, Obed, I'm coming to San Diego. Um, um, can I, do you have, can I stay with you or do you have anyone I can stay with? I hadn't seen this guy for a long time. I went on his profile and I realized that he's a really like popular YouTube guy. Okay, he's a YouTube, he's doing really well. He gets thousands of views on his videos and basically what he does is my wife's dream job is he goes to restaurants and reviews the food. <laughs> That's what he does, <laughs> right? And so he said, can anyone say it? And so obviously he couldn't stay with us and so we put it out there and, I, and we said, hey, like is there anyone who is open to hosting this guy while he's here. And one of our members was like, I'll do it. And at that time, they, they, they were living on their own in an apartment, and they had this guy come stay with them. You know, and they got to go to a cool restaurant and eat food, so that was the benefit. But all that to say, all that to say is that, man, like, be open. If you have a place to stay, you don't have to have a big house, you don't have to have a mansion. Um, I, I heard that guy, you know, my friend, he's stayed on the sofa or something. I don't know. Let's be open to that. Um, the next thing is like if, you know, as our church grows, we're going to need more community groups. Be open to hosting a community group. We're going to have needs in that area. Be open to saying, you know what? I'm going to host a community group. Hospitality is what God is calling us to. But hospitality isn't limited to using our homes. We can be hospitable um, in so many other ways with the resources, other resources God has given us. Rosario Butterfield, who wrote an amazing book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she has this to say. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day, time where regular routines can be disrupted but not destroyed. 
this margin stays open for the Lord to fill. To take an old, older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make room for a family displaced by a flood or a worldwide refugee crisis. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. Isn't that amazing? Like, create margins. I know you're busy, and I know you can easily fill your day with a ton to do. But how about um, 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 cultivating margins in your life and in your week so that you can be open to however the Lord wants to use that time? Apart from hospitality being a difference maker in people's lives, the biggest motivator for hospitality has to be the gospel. The gospel is what drives hospitality. Why am I saying this? Sam Albury, who's a Brit, has this to say. He says this, hospitality is one of the ways the gospel is expressed. We know a God who saw us out, took us in, made us family, and seated us at his table. It's a vision that, it, that is bracing and attractive. It daunts us, but it shouldn't. I wonder how different our homes, churches, and culture would look like if we took it to heart. I wonder what our homes, our neighborhood, our city, our church would look like if we practice radical hospitality. If hospitality wasn't just um, limited to the connect table or people in ministry or people with personalities that are more expressive. But we said to ourselves, we are going to go above and beyond and we are going to actually practice biblical hospitality. It would change so much in our lives and in our city. And so how can you be more hospitable than you are now? How can you be radically hospitable on a Sunday with your home and the resources God has given you? And so that was the first way we showcase brotherly love. We are radically hospitable. The second way we showcase brotherly love um, is by caring for the persecuted. Caring for the persecuted. Look at verse 3. It says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Um, the Jewish Christians to whom Hebrews was originally written to are being encouraged to show brotherly love by being empathetic with those in prison and those who are being mistreated mistreated because of their faith. To remember means to keep someone or something present in one's thoughts. And so we are being reminded, we are being encouraged to remember those who are suffering and being mistreated and being put in prison and being persecuted as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. And how we remember them is to pray for them. Pray for the persecuted church. Often. Right, And also, we remember them by being generous to them. 
Is there a way you can be empathetic to those who are being mistreated because of the gospel? This is one of the ways of showing brotherly love. And so we showcase brotherly love when we're radically hospitable, when we care for the persecuted, and we also showcase brotherly love when we honor marriage. When we honor marriage. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The Greek for honor in this verse speaks of things that are costly, precious, and valuable. It's used to describe something that possesses exceptional value. And it was used back then to refer to precious metals and stones like diamonds and rubies. And so... For marriage to be held in honor is another way of saying, view God's original plan and intent for marriage as precious and valuable. Let me remind you that Hebrews is a piece of literature written to first century Jewish Christians. In this section that we're studying this morning, the author, what he's doing is instructing his audience to practice brotherly love. So far, the author has encouraged them to express brotherly love by being hospitable and caring for those who are being persecuted. And now he wants them to exhibit brotherly love by honoring marriage. And the reason he wants them to honor marriage is because they lived, believe it or not, they lived in a society where the majority of the people around them dishonored marriage. And those who dishonored marriage were influenced by two schools of thought. Asceticism and libertinism. All right? I wish I could have it written down. But asceticism and libertinism. Those were the two schools of thought that dishonored marriage. Asceticism was an unhealthy view of celibacy. Those who adhered to asceticism believed that being single was necessary for Christian perfection. In other words, they believed that people who decided to get married were less spiritual than those who didn't. 
They viewed marriage as unnecessary and as a hindrance to spiritual devotion. And so if you got married, and I know we have some newly married here, and you met an ascetic, someone with that mindset, they would tell you that you are wasting your life and you've chosen a weaker spiritual path. In those days, the other belief system that dishonored marriage was libertinism. This belief was probably the most destructive assault on marriage at the time. And those who were under the influence of libertinism felt chastity in marriage was unrealistic and so men were expected and even encouraged to have extra sexual partners outside of marriage. And so you've got the really conservatives of asceticism and the really the liberals, right, of libertinism. We may no longer live in the ancient world, but many in our culture are still under the influence of these two views on marriage that are in conflict with God's view of marriage. The core beliefs of asceticism and libertinism still influence the way people view marriage in our contemporary Western culture. The reality is, the reality is, most of the people you work with, most of your neighbors and most of the residents, I would say, in San Diego have a low, dishonoring view of God's vision for marriage. And you guys know it. The mainstream social trend is that marriage is an ancient practice that's irrelevant in this cultural moment. Tim Keller does a fantastic job capturing uh, um, some of these thoughts and some of these um, dishonoring views of marriage. He, he describes it that way. People view marriage, people say marriage was originally about um, property and is now in flux. Marriage crushes individual identity and has been oppressive for women. Marriage stifles passion and is ill-fitted to psychological reality. Marriage is just a piece of paper that only serves to complicate love and so on. He's done a good job capturing the mindset and the attitude many have in our culture towards marriage. Divorce for any and every reason. Um, we have a neighbor that is a divorce attorney. And um, I think a year, last year, he just showed up with a Porsche. And I was like, oh, wow, good for you. And he was like, yeah, man, COVID was awesome. <laughs> I made a lot of money. And I've been making a lot of money as a divorce attorney. Casual sex cohabitation, 
same-sex marriage. These are some of the other mainstream societal trends that dishonor the vision of what marriage is according to the Bible. But for those of us who live under the authority of God's word, we are called and exhorted to honor marriage. Marriage was God's idea and it deserves our greatest honor. And so the question is, how are we to honor marriage? There are many ways to honor biblical marriage, but our passage for this morning gives us one of the most important ways we can honor marriage. Look at verse 4 again. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Okay, um, here it is. Here's how we can honor marriage. And let the marriage bed be what? undefiled we honor marriage by doing all we can to keep the marriage bed undefiled the um, phrase marriage bed here in this verse is used as an idiom for sexual intercourse in marriage and sexual relations in marriage is to be undefiled meaning it's to be guarded and kept pure and one of the things that will defile the sacred sexual relations between a husband and a wife is expressed in the last part of verse 4. Let's look at verse 4 again. So, let marriage be held in honor among all. How do we do that? And let the marriage bed be undefiled, kept pure, okay? And, 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 and how, how can the sacred... Um, sexual relations between a husband and wife be defiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The word adulterous is moikos in Greek and refers to those who betray their marriage vows. The word sexually immoral is pornos, where we get the word pornography from, and it refers to those involved in sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship. Together, the two words cover the whole range of unlawful sexual behavior. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to know that fornication and adultery are behaviors that defile and ultimately dishonor the marriage union. God intended for sexual intimacy to be a blessing enjoyed only by a husband and wife who have committed their entire lives to each other. And so any sexual activity outside of a marriage ruins and devastates God's view of marriage. God is so against fornication and adultery. Verse 4 also says that he will actually do what? Judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Since God ordained marriage and sex within marriage... He will judge those who practice sex outside of marriage. 
to live in an unrepentant lifestyle of sex outside of marriage and adultery, fornication, is to be under God's wrath and ultimately his judgment, not just in the future, but in the present. How is sexual immorality, the question is, judged in the present age? Arkent Hughes helps us here. He says, these are the ways sexual immorality outside of marriage and all is judged. He says, physical misery grimly follows immorality in the present epidemics of herpes and AIDS. Mental firestorms afflict millions in the form of guilt, self-hatred, and ego disintegration. Relational wars are the proverbial result of sensuality, alienation, estrangement, hatred, and sometimes murder. Societal degradation follows jungle ethics, brutalization, illegitimate children, abortion. Anyone who believes that rejecting God's plan for marriage will go unpunished is believing a lie. It is happening now from every angle, and there will also be a devastating judgment when all unrepentant sinners appear before God, who is a consuming fire. When we hear this warning, and I can feel it in this room, this warning of judgment, let's not take it the wrong way. This is what I mean. Let's not hear this from a violently angry God who cannot wait to inflict severe punishment on those involved in sexual behaviors outside of marriage. Let's not hear it like that, but let's hear it as a warning from a loving God who absolutely unconditionally loves us and wants the best for us. John Piper said it this way. He said, he said this, when I hear that warning, I don't hear a trigger-happy God. I don't hear a quick-tempered God just waiting to zap a fornicator or an adulterer. What I hear is the sober, truthful reinforcement of love for people. God loves it when we love Christians, and he loves it when we love strangers, and he loves it when we love prisoners, and he loves it when we don't love money but trust him for our needs, and he loves it when we honor marriage. Why? Because love is good for Christians and everybody. And honoring marriage is good for us and for our society. And therefore, God would be unloving if he did not judge those who demean marriage and defile it and cheapen it and ridicule it and treat it with contempt. Another thing I also want to say is this. Sexual sin is different to so many of the other sins. And we often jump to the unspoken conclusion that if we've been engaged in sexual sin, we are done. God is done with us and it's unforgivable. When you hear this, and you have a past 
or you are presently engaging in sexual immorality, any sexual thing outside of marriage, what I want you to hear is a loving God who wants the best for you. And he is calling you to heed his warning so that you may repent and turn to him. There is hope for you. Don't allow the guilt and the shame of past sexual sin um, 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 to interfere and to um, distance you from God. There is hope. I know many people, including myself, that God has been able to restore even though I've had a bleak sexual past. There is hope for you, not just for deliverance, but hope for a future of sex that is pure and God-glorifying. The enemy of our souls wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the marriage bed, and he wants to do everything he can to discourage sex inside the marriage bed. And so King's Cross Church, let's love God and love each other by honoring marriage. Let's maintain God's standards of moral purity because when we do, he will use us to shine in this dark world with the good news of God's forgiveness and with the news that sex is beautiful and is God-ordained in marriage. That's one of the ways to showcase brotherly love. The last way we can showcase brotherly love is to be content in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. First, we're to keep our lives free from what? Free from what? Thank you. Making sure you're still there. We are to keep our lives free from love of money. The love of money, remember this, doesn't mean a love for the actual dollar bill. Okay, there are people out there that love the notes and the dollar bills and they frame them and they collect them. They love money in that way. The love of money is essentially a love for things. Why? Because money is what makes it possible to get the things you so desperately want. Money is what gets you that vacation. Money is what gets you that house, the car, the weekend getaway, an early retirement, and the meals at top-rated restaurants. Money is what makes it possible to get the things you really, 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 really want. You love money because of what it can get you. 
To be obsessed with money is to be obsessed with something in this world. Therefore, the love of money is ultimately an unhealthy obsession with this present age. Second, the warning to keep our lives free from the love of money doesn't mean that we hate money and view it as evil. That's not a response here. Oh, I'm not supposed to love money, so I'm going to hate it and embrace poverty because poverty is more godly. No, this is not what this is saying. There's nothing wrong with working hard to make money and pay your bills, grow your savings, enjoy the good things life has to offer. Nothing wrong with those things, but they become unhealthy the moment we look to the things money can get us to give us what only God can give us. We love money when we value the things money gets us more than we value what a relationship with God provides us. Money has become a problem when we spend more of our money on ourselves than on others. We are obsessed with money when it makes us think more about ourselves and less about others. We are in love with money when we believe it's what will make us content in life. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, keep your life free from love of money. And so the question is, what's the solution? What will guard us from the love of money? Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. And then what does it say? What does it say? It's on the screen. And be, and be I, I can do a better job. You guys were all over the place. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, in other words, don't be obsessed with money so you can get the things you think you need to be happy. But be content with what you already have. And what you already have here in this context isn't talking about material things, okay? And so what do you have that you're supposed to be fully satisfied in? Look at verse 5 again. Keep your life free from... Oh, my voice just went high pitch. <laughs> Keep your, <laughs> keep your life. <laughs> keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. This is it. This is what you're supposed to be content in. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. In other words, don't love money because whatever you believe, money will get you that will bring you ultimate satisfaction is a lie. Why? Because as a Christian, you have the only thing in this world that will fully and completely satisfies you. And it's not an object, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. And because of Jesus, you, you Christian, have a relationship with the God of creation. And that's what you need to be content in. Unbelievable. 
That's why loving and being obsessed with money is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because you're, what you're doing is you're neglecting your family and you're putting all your time and energy and working crazy hours to get something that kind of promises to give you the contentment you already have in the Lord. And so get the car, get that home, save a ton of money, retire young, but don't look to those things to give you true and lasting contentment. Those things will not in a million years satisfy your soul the way Jesus can. They will never give you forgiveness of sins. They will never give you the hope of eternal life. No outfit can clothe you with the righteousness that Jesus clothes all of his followers. No bank balance is enough to pay the debt for the sins Jesus paid for you through his death and resurrection. No vacation or weekend away is enough to revive your soul the way Jesus can. God has said to you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Because of this, we have full confidence that the Lord is your helper. He will, you will not fear and what man can do to you. And so let's be truly and completely satisfied with these words. Let's be content with what you know, we know. All right, let's pray that we find true and lasting contentment in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to know that we are unconditionally loved by God. The God of the universe should fill our hearts with contentment. When my kids were young, they're getting old now, and they were babies. Like these babies we just dedicated. They had no concept of the value of money. Okay? You could hand one of my baby kids, okay, these kids, a $100 note. What are they going to do? Drool all over it. Like, put it in their mouth. Rip it up. Just no concept of the value of money. These babies, they are at a point now where they, what they value most is to get fed when they're hungry, to have their diaper changed when it's dirty, and they value physical affection that when they are in distress, their parents would hold them and comfort them with a hug or with a pacifier. <laughs> everything else, these babies, everything else money has provided for them. Their house, the clothes they're wearing, their headband, their cute shoes, um, everything else is less valuable to them than the presence, provision, and comfort of their parents. I hope you know where I'm going with this. King's Cross Church, may we be childlike in how we view money and the things money gives us. 
may we be childlike to place more value on a relationship with God than the things of this world. One author said, when we stop looking for contentment in everything and we start looking for Christ in everything, ironically, we find contentment everywhere. May we love and cherish and treasure Jesus more than the things money can get us because man money can never give us the contentment and the comfort and the hope that is found in Jesus. Rob Golding says, dessert tickles our dopamine receptors, but the divine essence of God fills our souls with burning contentment. God is, in every conceivable way, more, better, and out there, but he is also available to us through Jesus Christ. When we experience God through Christ, we experience something that does more than shift brain chemicals, though it does that too. It moves your very soul. C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so if you are here and you are trying to find contentment and satisfaction in created things, you probably have reached a point where it just does not satisfy. And at this point, wherever you are, this is indicating and signaling and showing you that you were made for another world, a world where the God of creation is the king. And so bow the knee, surrender to him this morning. And when you do, you will find contentment that will blow your mind. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of these truths. May we as a church love you and as a result may the love that you pour into us may that overflow to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.